Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to The Sediment, the official ASPN conference podcast. This is the first virtual ASPN conference, and although we aren't together and are exhausted after a long day of Zoom talks, we hope this podcast can provide you an opportunity to filter all the information you've received and come away with little pellets of knowledge, The Sediment. Welcome to a special edition of The Sediment, everybody. We are so excited to bring you uh, another great episode of The Sediment from phase two of ASPN programming. We have a great group of panelists available for you today. Uh, I am Sudha Garimela. I am a pediatric nephrologist in Greenville, South Carolina, and I am the podcast editor for this year's conference. I am happy to introduce our hosts for the evening to you. My name is Sudha. I am pediatric nephrologist at East Tennessee Children's Hospital and SOMI editor for ASPN. Hi, my name is Stella Shin. I'm an assistant professor of pediatrics at Emory University and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and I am your co-host tonight. Hi, good evening, everybody, and welcome. My name is Juan Kupferman, and I'm, I am a pediatric nephrologist in, Brook, in Brooklyn, New York, at my Morning Medical Center. And I'm professor of pediatrics at, at Einstein College of Medicine and one of, and at ASPN. I'm communication uh, chair of the communication committee and I'm one of the co-hosts tonight. I welcome everybody again. Let's start with Dr. Mann, my former program director. Della, that was going to be my fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I gave it away. <laughs> She's told your thunder. <laughs> Stella is part of uh, one of the, my most enduring accomplishments, which is the number of good people that we've stimulated and inspired to go into pediatric nephrology. Uh, so thank you, Stella. My name is John Mann. I'm a professor of pediatrics at Nationwide Children's Hospital, the Ohio State University. And uh, I am pleased to be able to be here tonight and contribute to our discussion. Um, I'm Vicki Norwood. Um, I'm pediatric nephrologist at the University of Virginia with a little the compared to the <laughs> Ohio State University. Um, I had come up with a completely different kind of fun fact for myself, but maybe that's why it's fun to have a group of people here. Um, it's kind of maybe mundane, but I spent most of this week trying to put together a bike rack that would fit on my car. And I am not mechanically literate, perhaps is the word to use. And I must say that it, thanks to FaceTime and my brother, who's a year younger and who I considered totally annoying and useless for a large part, certainly of my younger life, um, I learned a lot about locking bolts and how to manhandle. And I think that's the right word in all honesty is manhandling. Um, bolts and screws and wrenches and such. And now I have a bike rack that I will fit on the back of my car and I can take my bike out for a ride instead of having to stuff it into the back of my SUV. So I'm quite feeling quite accomplished this week um, for a completely different reason than pediatric nephrology. Sorry, I am so jealous. I want to do that for past couple of months since spring started and I couldn't. I blame my husband. <laughs> Maybe I can rent out my brother. I'm not surprised when we started out and we were doing some sound testing, we actually had to do that. Yeah. Did you turn it off and on again? 
that's the kind of um, uh, interventions I'm good at. Um, but that's a wonderful skill to have and uh, welcome. Hi, I'm Joseph Flynn. I am a pediatric nephrologist at the University of Washington and the Seattle Children's Hospital. And I am one of the co-editors of the journal Pediatric Nephrology. And a fun fact for me is that, you know, when I received the Barnett Award, Tammy Brady showed me with one of my dogs. But what people don't know is that I actually have three dogs. And we are now at the point with all three dogs that they each have a chronic medical condition. Oh. Two of them have endocrinopathies and one of them has congestive heart failure. So we end up spending um, a great deal of time giving them their medicine. I will say that peanut butter works well to give dogs pills. And that's my fun fact. Uh, I'm Brad Wardy. I'm a chief of pediatric nephrology at Children's Mercy, Kansas City. And I also have an animal related fun fact. When I was a resident at Children's Mercy, there was no uh, large animal vet at the Kansas City Zoo. And so as an intern, I was the large animal doctor. And one of my patients in the ICU was Molly the gorilla, which was a small gorilla that had pneumonia that we had to treat at the hospital. There were no rules back in those days. There was no infectious disease problems. So we brought the gorilla into the hospital for five days in the intensive care unit, and I was her doctor. So that is my fun fact. Oh my goodness, I hope you have a picture. Uh, I don't have a picture, but I have her x-ray. <laughs> so I guess what we are learning is pediatric nephrology skills come in handy in a wide variety of uh, life scenarios. <laughs> so we have a question here. Did Gorilla sign the consent? <laughs> I have another question. Did the gorilla need dialysis? The gorilla did not need dialysis, thank goodness. Hi, I'm Vikas Tarnidarpa, and I am a pediatric nephrologist at the Washington University in St. Louis and St. Louis Children's Hospital. And uh, my fun fact for today, actually, is that I there are four Barnett Award Ds on this uh, group call today, and I have uh, some connection to each of them. I was the nominator for Dr. Wardy, and I was the person who got to choose who would present Dr. Flynn which was Dr. Tammy Brady was the person I got to choose and I hope Dr. Flynn was happy with that choice. And then just last week, as we will discuss later in this uh, podcast, I got to talk a little bit about Henry Barnett before introducing the session that we awarded Dr. Vicki Norwood and John Mahan. Christine Sethna, um, Chief of Pediatric Nephrology at Cohen Children's of Northwell Health in Long Island, New York. Um, but before I get to my fun fact, I have to show you, if you follow me on Twitter, you see my Twitter handle is at New Kidneys OTB, which stands for New Kidneys. Uh, and my fun fact is I'm a huge boy band fanatic <laughs> growing up. And so our team name is New Kidneys on the Block. And we wear these sweatshirts or t-shirts anytime a kid is transplanted. And we walk around the hospital like that. And one of our patient's mom, who was a big fan of the group um, took a picture and posted it on Instagram and Donnie Wahlberg liked it. Very happy day for me. So it was really exciting. That is Could so cool. New kidneys <laughs> on the block. <laughs> a sweatshirt, a hoodie that we have and we have t-shirts. Okay. I assume they're, they're only like 24.95 if we want to send our check, Christine. 
Yep. We have a yearly order going in. We have new fellows coming, so we'll be placing new orders. Excellent. Well, they look great. Hiya, this is Lindsay Harshman from the University of Iowa. Um, not necessarily the, but the. Um, I'm the medical director of pediatric kidney transplant here, and I am a native Iowan, which leads to my fun fact that I grew up in a small town of southern Iowa, and um, thought I was maybe going to be a veterinarian growing up because that's what everybody you know thinks in southern Iowa. So you know, I can come take care of your your pups, Joseph, absolutely. Um, but in small town Iowa, where I grew up, had a hay bale fall on my car once driving into town. And it's kind of like one of those weird stories you never think is going to happen to you. But I was driving into town as like a senior in high school and was behind a big truck with hay bales and the big square bale just flew off and right on the front of my car. And so I can tell you that I'm probably the only person here to have hit a hay bale while driving. So <laughs> only That's in Iowa, is Iowa. that the same? Iowa. <laughs> I I have a fun fact related to uh, Lindsay and uh, when I was interviewing for pediatrics, she was the one who showed me around when I interviewed at University of Iowa. And then when I tried, uh, when I was looking for fellowships, like, oh, the resident who showed me, she's an nephrologist. That's cool. <laughs> but then I did not interview them. It's, it's always such a small world when you pass through Iowa. Well, we have a lot of panelists from a lot of the universities of various parts around the country. Um, and another fun fact is like recently USC, which is the University of South Carolina, not to be confused with the University of Southern California, um, has just lost their president because he um, happened to call us the University of California. So <laughs> there's a lot in a name, right? <laughs> But anyway, welcome everybody. We will go ahead and start with the Barnett Award presentation. Uh, I would like uh, request Dr. Dhanidharka to um, in introduce us to the Barnett Award and say a few words about Dr. Barnett. Thank you, Sudha. So Barnett was absolutely a giant in pediatric nephrology. Many call him the father of pediatric nephrology. Um, he was a resident and a undergraduate at Washington University in St. Louis, St. Louis Children's Hospital. And then he went on to become uh, a chair of pediatrics at uh, Montefiore and uh, Albert Einstein, where he really developed one of the premier divisions of pediatric nephrology. And that really just uh, was an amazing place to be. And he did a lot of the seminal research in that area that helped uh, shape our field. and. Then when the American Academy of Pediatrics created a Lifetime Achievement Award for nephrology, initially they called it the Kidney Award. He was himself, Henry Barnett, was one of the earliest winners. And then a couple of years later, the award was renamed after Henry Barnett to honor him. And each year, the section of nephrology awards one person uh, that award. The list of honorees represents the best and greatest among our field. Four of them are here today. And it's always a great honor and pleasure for us to be able to do those presentations, usually in person. Dr. Flynn was the last one to be awarded in person pre-COVID. And then we had this long gap. And finally, we were able to do a virtual presentation last week, which we were thrilled about. You know, one of the things I didn't realize about Dr. Barnett, um, after I watched the, um, the award presentation, I went on Google just to find out a little bit more about him. Um, he worked on the Manhattan Project 
in New Mexico. I did not realize that. And I found a transcript of an AAP interview of him from 1996. And it was just fascinating to read about his experience um, as the pediatrician for all of the scientists working on the Manhattan Project. Yes, that's absolutely true. It's really a fun fact part of his history um, and just appropriate in terms of all the different things that he did. And because it's also, because uh, certainly in researching Dr. Barnett, I realized that he was one of the original quintuple threats. You know, he was an esteemed clinician that everyone respected. He was one of those tubular research physiology guys back when the tubule was where it was at. He was a great teacher and, and developed a real teaching sort of culture at Einstein. Um, he was a fierce, you know, advocate. Uh, he got involved in advocacy for foster children and did a lot of work with the AAP. And then finally, he was a chair. You know, he really developed people and 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 built a, a strong department. So um, uh, he really was a giant. Um, Dr. Mehan, Dr. Um... Norwood and Dr. Flynn, uh, if you could give your impressions about being recipients of Barnett Award. It's, I must say that um, to get the phone call that you've been awarded is one of the most amazing moments in a career. Um, this is, is not something you're waiting on. Um, generally, it's going to happen during your work week and you're scurrying around in the middle of something else and then your, um, your world kind of stops for a minute and you think, wow, um, okay, <laughs> thank you. Uh, that feels wonderful, but it takes a long time for it to sink in. And I think it's interesting because of the lag with COVID this year that um, it was, it took a while to sink in. Then I had to get used to the idea that we weren't gonna have an award ceremony because we weren't gonna to get together. And what did that really mean? And how did I wanna think about it? And then I sort of put it away for a while. Um, and then as this came around um, for the ceremony last week, it was a lot of time thinking about where I've been, how I got here, um, who, who all has been with me on this path. Um, admittedly feeling like, wow, how did I suddenly go from being that fellow scurrying around at, at Tulane, um, trying out this new drug called erythropoietin and um, finally figuring out a little bit about this other new drug, tacrolimus, and <laughs> those sorts of things. And how, you know, that does seem like ancient history, but it seems like yesterday. Um, so it's, it's quite an interesting experience, and I'm sure the others on the call tonight, too, will, will feel the same way, that you can't help but reflect a lot on where you've been and how things have changed and how things haven't changed, and most importantly, all the people who have been with you all along, your, your teachers, your colleagues, your friends, your patients. Um, this has brought up a lot of thinking for me about some of the patients that are indelibly it etched in my brain. Um, and so it's, it's a really wonderful experience. And I'm, I'm so grateful, not just for the honor, but for the sort of mental work that it put me through um, to, to do it, because I don't think we stop and reflect on where we've been um, often enough. 
um, we're usually thinking about where we're trying to go. Uh, and so I'm, I'm deeply, deeply appreciative and deeply honored um, to the Academy and to everybody that's been around all this time. And for those of you that I'm just getting to meet, you're now a new part of it as well. And so I'm, I'm very, very thankful and appreciate all of it and trying not to feel too old. That's wonderful, Dr. Norwood. <laughs> and um, Dr. Mahan. Well, um, <clears throat> you know, Vicki, it's not fair. You had a whole year to think about it and I had just a couple weeks, uh, but uh, not that we're not from the same generation, but when I was a resident, we were doing clinical trials with Captopril on patients in the floors at University of Minnesota. And we were rolling out this new wonder drug, cyclosporin. So I do, re I do remember back, but yeah, when I got the call, it was amazing, um, uh, uh, humbling, uh, terrific feeling, a feeling of, of being really um, um, recognized for doing the things that, that I really love doing. Um, and, and certainly at some element, um, uh, causing one to be reflective, you know, reflective for the patients you've had a chance to care for and help, uh, having a chance to think about the, you know, the residents and learners that I've had a chance to frame and shape and, uh, and train. And then, you know, my colleagues, uh, my teachers and mentors and, and, and my family. And, and it, I don't know about you, Vicki, but it was nerve wracking thinking how I was going to really show the gratitude that I felt in my heart in only 10 minutes. Um, and uh, uh, it's really what what uh, what came up to me most was the gratitude that I had for this great journey and the chance to really recognize all those people that have been so important. Thank you, Dr. Mahan and Dr. Flynn. Well, I think I had many of the same reactions. I mean, just looking at the list of past awardees and thinking that your peers count you as being at that level of accomplishment is just, you know, uh, amazing. And, um, and as, um, as has already been said, humbling. And then, you know, the other thought that I had, I think John touched on this in his remarks was that it is so um, meaningful that it comes from the AAP where you know a lot of us start out um, as that's our organization when we're in pediatric residency and then some of us remain more involved with the AAP than others I know well and you all know that it's been a big part of what I've done um, over the last few years and um, so that makes it very meaningful and the fact that it even calls out um, specific things that are near and dear to my heart, like advocacy, for example. And I was thinking about that when Vicki was getting her award and showing the pictures of Dr. Louie and really the, the, the ties that we all have to the AAP and how this award really touches on things that are so important to children in general. I mean, our patients, of course, but, you know, ch all children um, makes it, you know, really a, a special sort of uh, uh, recognition. Thank you, Dr. Flynn. And um, Dr. Waradi, you, uh, you were awardee for the Barnet in 2015. Would you like to share some words? 
Sure. I'm much younger than those three people you heard from, but um, you know, uh, and again, I, I just to echo their thoughts, uh, you know, I agree with everything they said, you know, when I, when I got the award, it was really a bit of a surprise because like all of us, we're all working on the front line still. We're all doing our normal thing. Uh, and there's so many people out there that are as accomplished or more accomplished than we are. And so you, you ask the question, why am I getting an award uh, for doing what I do every day and what I love to do every day? So uh, again, it's a great honor, especially because it comes from our peers, right? You know, our colleagues who recognize our accomplishments, maybe some, even more than we recognize them ourselves. So uh, again, I, I want to thank the AAP for this. It's, it's a terrific award and uh, it's, uh, it's right here on my desk. You can't see it behind all my papers, but it's, it's, it's sitting right here on my desk. I just have to, you know, say something here because I just have to say that I am so um, amazed at how gracious and how open and like, you know, communicative everyone is in this community. And as somebody who started out as a very nervous, hesitant, you know, international medical graduate coming to this country and just coming to the first meeting at ASPN and uh, just attending a fellows, you know, battle of the brains or whatever we had. And Vicky Norwood was there and uh, just, you know, people started talking to you. It's a huge um, change for, you know, culturally, of course, it's a big change uh, training in India versus training in the US, but also just in how approachable each one of you were that I never felt any sort of uh, intimate, I was not intimidated at all. I was able to talk to everybody. And then I would go back and look at all the things you had done. And I would be like, oh my God, did I really just have a conversation with this person? And they've done so much and they're so accomplished. And I would feel like I must have looked like a complete idiot to them. But every year I see that that is the spirit that really has kept me close to these organizations is how accessible everybody is. I totally agree, Sutha. I mean, uh, you know, as junior faculty, it's just so nice to be able to connect with more experienced uh, nephrologists and everybody's just so friendly um, in the community. So I just wanna put in a plug for ASPN membership. Um, if you've let your membership lapse or if you are listening for the first time, please go ahead and renew your membership or join ASPN because it really is a wonderful community. You know, I, I did wanna add one thing that, that Vicki touched on and, and John touched on. Um, you know, what, what's been great about our careers, because we are all contemporaries, is to truly see the evolution of nephrology from so many different angles. I mean, advocacy is certainly one of them and the strength of the AAP. But when she mentioned, the, I think Vicky mentioned cyclosporin, hearing about cyclosporin and, and then ultimately tacrolimus and erythropoietin. I mean, these were two agents that changed the way we care for children, changed their outcomes in a phenomenal way. And to be part of that evolution uh, that the four of us are has been really uh, just a, a terrific opportunity. Uh, and hopefully for the, in the next 20, 30, 40 years, the, the pediatric nephrologists, the young pediatric nephrologists like yourself will be part of that same evolution of nephrology in the care of kids. That's such a great segue into my next question. Um, I wanted to ask in your collective experiences, what do you think are the one or two greatest advances that we've made in pediatric nephrology? Joseph, take it. I see you have a chat on that. Well, I think, you know, there's a few things. Um, I guess the hormonal therapies for children with advanced um, 
CKD, and then there uh, are the advances in immunosuppression. And, you know, it's very interesting because every, it's there, these patients fortunately are quite rare now who actually look like the kids I took care of when I was in training, the short kids who have been on dialysis forever and who never really had a successful transplant. But every so often, you know, a patient like that gets referred maybe from another country or whose parents have never really complied with therapies. And I always make a point of talking to our fellows and junior faculty about, you know, <clears throat> this child, just wait till you take care of this little girl and get her on, um, you know, the new therapies and wait till you see how the, how big the changes are going to be in this, in this child's life and her family's life. And, you know, I think just our, our outcomes now are unimaginable to the people even, well, maybe the people, the generation ahead of us would have thought about it, but certainly to Dr. Barnett and um, that generation, we're doing things that were never really imagined before. And it's so, you know, it's really exciting when to be able to share that um, knowledge and, and get, an, a, you know, a young person interested because look at what we can do for this particular child, which is, a, you know, a manifestation of all that we've learned over the past several decades. And so the, I was going to mention, and Stella, that, you know, my mentor, Bob Vernier, did the first kidney biopsy of a child in North America in the 50s at Grand Rounds on an exam table at the University of Minnesota. I would hear those stories and think, amazing, like, and, and you know, he described foot process fusion in minimal change to phonic syndrome because he did the EMs. And, and then, you know, fast forward 25 years later, and when I'm a resident, calcitriol gets released. And we had the most sad looking chronic kidney disease specimens at the University of Minnesota. We were at an end stage center and these kids had deformities and they were short and they would break bone. It was just, uh, you know, sad. And, and then calcitriol came out and like amazing, the bone disease advances. And then shortly after that, crazy people like Barb Lippi and Richard Fine gave recombinant human growth hormone to kids with normal growth hormone levels in CKD, and they grew. So again, all these kids in the 70s and 80s were so short when I would see them in renal clinic as a fellow, and with growth hormone and calcitriol and the phosphate binders, it has just been such a dramatic difference. And Brad, we've seen, um, you know, um, uh, Franz's pictures, right? Franz Schaefer, where he shows the pictures of the, the German kids in the 90s with CKD and they're all four foot eight and, and you know, and, and deformed legs and, and then what the kids look like in the, in the 2010s, right? What a difference has, has happened to our patients. One other thing I wanted to mention related to what you just said, John, on phosphate binders is the issue of aluminum. Uh, and that wasn't the addition of something that was taking it away. And I remember seeing kids three and four years of age who were severely developmentally delayed and couldn't walk and couldn't talk. And we didn't realize we were giving them aluminum as part of their phosphate binder regimen. And it was uh, Alan Alfrey and the group from the University of Colorado, where I did my fellowship, that really were the, the you know, the, 
the people that determined that it was the aluminum and the water and the phosphate binders that was actually poisoning these kids and adults with end-stage kidney disease. So finding that, I think, also had a significant outcome on the, in terms of the neurologic development of these kids. I was, I was going to add, and this is really more in, in Brad's um, world, but um, the dialysis mechanisms themselves and the, the ability now to have at least improved technologies that can be utilized in smaller and smaller children. And because it, it used to be a total thrash <laughs> all the time. I was just thinking as we were talking about this, about um, doing CAVH in the early years when you had no pumps and you spent all your time in the ICU transfusing babies because the system that you're trying to use just clotted over and over and over and over and over again. And how those therapies now are standard in standard use. Uh, and that's, that's really amazing um, and, and really productive in, in really what's quite a short period of time. I know we have a long ways to go and we want things a lot better and faster, um, but it's, it's just been tremendous. My other thing of thinking about is, is really maybe not, it's not an accomplishment in nephrology, but is a change in, in our practice that's happened during our lifetimes. And when, when Brad and John and Joseph and I were, were getting started, we really just took care of kidney patients most of the time, a few pa other patients here and there. Um, but look around us now, and we, we now take care of, we, we've got a whole new collection of kidney patients um, because they have other diseases that they're now surviving. Um, all of the kids with all sorts of malignancies, all the cardiac surgical kids, the uh, other solid organ transplant kids. Um, so we have, interestingly enough, a, a new a new type of kidney disease compared to the past, which is the chronic kidney disease that results from survival of another chronic severe disease. Um, and the evolution of that is still happening. Um, we're, we're, we haven't even, I think, really touched the tip of it very well. And I think that's gonna be a big part of, part of our future, but it, it's a wonderful, wonderful problem for pediatrics to have is that we have a lot of patients around um, that we get to be exposed to now that used to never survive um, to even need our care, or if our care was involved, it was really a last-ditch effort. And you guys Sorry, are involved with, with the neonatal dialysis. Um, I think about the Aquadex and the Carpe Diem and how we can tell families, well, yes, we can use this device for a period of time and then transition your child onto peritoneal dialysis and then transition your child to a kidney transplant. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that, um, you know, renal replacement therapies was not, were not being offered to um, infants with severe CKD. I remember I, I um, was the first nephrologist to offer dialysis to a baby on my first faculty position out of training and the institution that I was at that had never been done before. And now what we do um, in the neonatal ICU is just, you know, astounding. And um, we have this ability to really help these children uh, get off to um, 
what will hopefully be a long life. It's so amazing to hear how far we've come in pediatric nephrology. Um, it makes me wonder, you know, what kind of work remains to be done now? Um, what, what do you think about that? Um, we'll start with Dr. Wardy. Oh, thank you. Well, uh, you know, I, I think, and I read your note before this call about, you know, where do we need to go? Where do there need to be trials? Uh, and I think one area that we need to address more successfully is the issue of uh, focal sclerosis, uh, both primary disease and recurrent disease. You know, when I, again, if I look back over the past almost four decades, we've made some improvements, but, but not a lot over a, over a period of nearly 40 years. Um, and I think that's, you know, that affects so many of our kids um, that it, I think it really needs to continue to be a, a, a focus. Um, you know, I think we're seeing in the, in the recurrent disease, the uh, lipophoresis, maybe that's something that really can turn the corner for some of these kids, but we need to have some multi-center studies so that we can try to try to answer some of these questions in a timely manner, not over a decade, uh, a much shorter period of time. And I wanna make a plug for kidney research. And I think if, if many of you saw a recent publication, AJKD, that kidney funded research uh, is at the bottom of the list from the NIH. I mean, the absolute bottom. Uh, and we in pediatric nephrology really need to up our game in terms of uh, funded research because we, we need more funds from the NIH, but we have to have high quality proposals uh, and maybe multi-center proposals to try to address some of these important issues for, uh, for kids with kidney disease. I'll tag on to that, Brad, um, by saying that, or, or I'll challenge our entire field, I hope, um, to do a better job at just that, of, of coming together and being willing to actually study the things that we find so challenging. And it's not easy. We've all worked into our usual processes of treating things in certain directions. And we know we don't know how to do it better, but we hesitate to give up on our own um, usual comfortable pathways. And other, other specialties have done a better job at saying, we don't know how to treat this. So we're going to get together and we're gonna to put together protocols and we're all gonna follow them, whether we, think it's gonna work or not. And from that, I mean, look at what hematology oncology has done. It's absolutely amazing. Um, and we haven't been able to pull anything like that together so far. And I find that in all honesty, one of the sad parts <laughs> about this point in my career that this has been a problem all along and we still haven't really gotten there. And I, I don't know how we, um, pull it together, but hopefully some of the brighter minds coming along behind us will figure out how to do that. But Vicki, you know, we really have developed a multi-center ethos in pediatric nephrology. And some of us were there when Napritix was born, and that was the first time that people got together and put data into a common database. The first time that people went beyond their own data and looked at trends and, and, um, and were able to make advances. And and I still envy the hemonkers that are 30 years ahead of us, but, uh, but we really have evolved to do, to, to really embrace multi-centered trials. And you know, when I think back in the 80s and 90s, most of the papers were one center doing one thing and reporting on it. And now that doesn't happen any longer. Now things are done as team science and, and to, so much to our benefit. So, so I think embracing multi-centerism as the way to move the field forward 
And then if I could sort of bring that back to what you, where you were, Vicki, personalized medicine is sort of a hackneyed term, but it is what our patients deserve. You know, every kid with focal sclerosis isn't the same. There's personalized elements to their FSGS, to their minimal change, to their transplant rejection, to their hypertension. And as we get better at having uh, large data sets and computers and, and AI, I think we're going to be able to personalize what we do. You know, the fact that we give every new nephrotic the same dose of prednisone is crazy. It's crazy, right? Do we give every patient with hypertension the same dose of lisinopril? Of course not. You know, so uh, we have to personalize or at least start to be able to subcategorize our therapy to move our field forward. Okay, so now that uh, since we're moving to the clinical research topics, I am gonna ask a few questions to Lindsay, Christine, and Brad. But before I do that, uh, I'd like to share, you know, my own reflections and actually fun fact. Um, that is that uh, my connections to the three of you, Lindsay, Christine, and Brad, I, it's probably related to clinical research because I started with Brad, you know, back in the CKIT study. I mean, from the beginning and. I've been learning from him, you know, since then. I think the first time I, I met Christine, I mean, it, it was about the question about a possible clinical research together many years ago. And even with Lindsay, I think I met her at an abstract session and we were talking about our interest in, in brain cognition and things like that. So, so this is just wonderful. So, you know, the, the, first, the first questions I, I, I like to ask is if you know just briefly highlight, you know, the, the, your, your session in just a, a few words. I mean, you presented at PAS, and if you just want to just summarize what you presented for, for our audience, that would be wonderful. Start with, we can start with Lindsay. Perfect. So um, Brad and I were honored to be able to co-host a um, workshop really talking about um, how to develop a clinical research program that everybody wants. What things do people need to have an uh, outstanding clinical research program? The regulatory components, understanding multi-center um, networks, the quote unquote pay for play, um, and you know how to be involved in therapeutic drug trials, which has really been alluded to is something that our community really should be digging into more. It's, it's tough, it's not easy by any means, um, but I think it was a really high impact session in that we were able to highlight topics that aren't necessarily talked about um, on a day-to-day -day basis in pediatric nephrology. So it was a great opportunity to bring together people that have some really neat expertise, including Christine, who talked about the regulatory aspects of um, starting a clinical research program. And certainly, even as someone who's been involved in research for a, a few years now, I've, I certainly learned quite a bit. Great. Thank, thanks, Lindsay. Chris, Christine, Christine, what, what, would you like to share with us your, your highlights? Highlights of the session. Uh, it was uh, a great session, I thought. Um, I have learned a lot, even I learned a lot doing my own presentation and I spoke on behalf of navigating the regulatory world through the investigator's eye. And then we had a wonderful speaker, Cindy, who uh, is a CI, CEO of I think of the other side in the industry who gave us the industry perspective. Um, so it was really great to hear both sides together um, and, and what each other thinks. 
I thought that was really great. And then uh, Guillermo did a great session on how to keep and find a research coordinator, which is always an issue. Um, and I struggle with that because I have, you know, young, really talented people that either go to medical school um, or these CROs come in, find out that they're really great and lure them away. Um, so I'm constantly struggling to keep coordinators and find good ones. Um, and then Sue Massengill gave her uh, talk on the multicenter collaboratives, which I think is one of the greatest developments actually in our pediatric nephrology community that we've been able to do that in every, almost every subject that's important in pediatric nephrology. Great, great. And actually, I, 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 I also enjoyed the, all the sessions and, and actually I felt identified with all the, the difficulties with coordination and everything. I, I Actually, I thought it was only me. So I felt like, you know, relieved that it happens to many people. So Brad, what about you? I mean, you, you, you are very experienced. What you can share with us about clinical research, the highlights and, you know, where, where we go from here? Well, I mean, I think uh, to, to Christina's point, I, I think um, Guillermo, when he spoke about coordinators, um, you, you know, I, I hope we all value our coordinators uh, in terms of our clinical research programs as much as we should. They're key. I mean, and, you know, as the regulatory requirements have sort of in increased every, every year, um, they become even that, that more important to our programs. And so, you know, I think he shared some important checklists almost about what the expectations of them should be and what, what we as, as investigators uh, need to do to, uh, if you will, pat them on the back, congratulate them, thank them for all that they contribute to our clinical research program. So I think that's really important for anybody who's starting a clinical research program or already has one in place, that those people are extraordinarily valuable to us. Um, and then Susan, again, I think, uh, you know, as John was talking about, really emphasize the importance of the, of the multi-center programs, the multi-center trials. Um, you know, whether it's the Southwest Pediatric Nephrology Study Group, which was one of the first groups that got together uh, back in the, in the late 70s of uh, pediatric nephrologists from across the country. Uh, and then, you know, NAPRTIC came after that. Uh, and then now there's SCOPE and IROC and CKID. These are all collaborative. And I, and I think one of the reasons they work so well is what was touched on early on is we have a great community that works so well together. And, and there really aren't a lot of personal agendas. Uh, everybody is there as, as part of the group and all, everybody wants to see success. So I, I think that, you know, the one thing I think we do need to do as a, as a community is decide amongst our community, if we can do that, what are really the important topics we need to tackle? Because I think that's what oncology has done. And then they've worked to solve some, some important questions. And while we're doing a lot of things together, I think we maybe need to be a little bit more targeted to really hit on the, the big topics, the most important topics, if we can agree upon that as a community and then figure out how to attack them. That, that's what I would like to see over the next decade in terms of our, you know, our multi-center approach to, uh, to progress. Yeah, Brad, I, I totally agree with our advancement and, and, and oncology is ahead of us, um, but a lot of our multi-centerism is still observational. And Joseph brought this up earlier. I think where our field really needs to go is pediatric clinical trials and not just be the afterthought um, when industry comes up with new medications um, to get the pediatric stuff. I think that, that kids need to be involved in these clinical trials early. And we have a lot to learn, I think, from the oncology field for that. I agree 
Christina, I mean, I think we've done a great job of observational research in nephrology. Um, CKID, for example, which Brad is our fearless leader of, has really helped us identify the areas where we should now move into clinical trials. Just like, you know, I gave a talk earlier this week on um, hypertension and progression of chronic kidney disease. And we think we know what the right blood pressure target is. And we think we know what the right drug to use is, but it's, we can only, we only have to say these things sort of in, um, with all these qualifiers because it's observational data and we haven't done the randomized clinical trials that need to be done. And, um, and there are many other you know, areas of nephrology where I think that um, groups like Napratix and the PNRC and um, others have um, helped show us, well, these are the questions and now we need to design the trials to answer them. I think one thing though, as you're speaking and I'm reflecting on the discussion at hand that, that has been apparent to me in, in my short career thus far is the problem with definition in our field, right? Uh, even defining AKI, defining neonatal AKI, um, you know, even defining um, C3G, the MPGN um, diseases that are out there. And in some ways, because it is such an integrated field, I do wonder if sometimes um, the problem of even definition, we get, we have to have a clean definition, right? But it almost becomes a rate limiting step in our ability to do effective clinical trials. Um, if uh, there's even disagreement on the definitions at hand. I think the other, uh, one other thing that we need to think about, and I sort of saw it in the chat here, when we think of quality of life, is I think one thing we do better now than we did in the past is listen to families. And I think we have to continue to ask them what's important to them. And that should help also help us direct where does the, the focus need to be in our, in our ongoing research? Because as we all know, in many of our families, it's not the creatinine that's most important to them. Uh, it's, it's again, their ability to function as, as normal as possible, to go to school, uh, to have their peers. And so I think we, you know, we do a lot of good other research in the lab and, and using our technology. But that quality of life thing is something that's exceedingly important. And I think we have to continue to focus on that. And again, get insight from the patients and families themselves. And transition of care, right? That quality of life bridges into transition of care, which you know, is so, so, so important for patients. And yet we, again, in many centers, we don't have good mechanisms for how we transition a patient. Every center might be slightly different. And some centers may not even necessarily transition a patient really at all to an adult program, simply your 18 go. And I think that is a huge worry for our families too. It's obviously um, harder to do a clinical um, you know, trial on transition of care, but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be pushed for. And you know, to expand on, on Brad's uh, you know, point about uh, sort of uh, where where this goes, you know, 30 years ago, it was all about our patients surviving and, and to what Lindsay's saying now, it really should be and is about quality. And, and quality means not just dropping them off at 20 years of age at an adult nephrologist doorstep, but to really make it an effective transition and to develop our patients self-management skills throughout adolescence so that they can, they can be somewhat halfway decent 
by the time they meet our adult nephrology colleagues. So, and and Brad, I want to come back. You know, two other parts of our clinical research menu that I think really deserves um, special uh, call out. You know, one is um, having the opportunity to collaborate research, collaborative research that matters to the investigators, and that's one of the things that our pediatric nephrology research corps consortium is really focused on is studies from the ground up. You know, these are the things that people want to do rather than someone's got a trial and wants our, our members to engage in it. These are projects that people are passionate about, that they may have a personal connection to or have some patience. Uh, so I think there, there is a need to recognize that uh, the wisdom of the crowd, you know, the, the crowd of pediatric nephrologists will identify what are some of the important questions and what are some of the answerable questions. And then lastly, I think industry serves a role and, and even more so as we can be partnering with industry to design effective pharmaceutical trials and we can be with industry to help define effective targets, uh, you know, so that the industry tri trials don't come to us, but they're helped in their development by us. Well said, John. I was, it, you made me think about one of the other issues that's been a long-term challenge for pediatric nephrology and that's the, for pediatric nephrology research. And that's that most of us practice in relatively small divisions. Um, so we're doing everything all the time. And how do you pick and choose what you're gonna do? Um, how do you manage um, starting a or expanding your transplant program while you're trying to do clinical research that you've never done in the past um, and those sorts of, of competing interests, so to speak. Um, I love your comment about finding the thing that you're passionate about because it's easy to think we should try to do it all. But in small program, even in big programs, you can't do it all. Um, but you have more opportunities and ways to spread the jobs around. In small programs, you can, I think people will get burned out or tend to get burned out if they try to do too much. Um, and certainly if you're doing a lot in places that you're not really passionate about as the leader. And so I, I don't, I'm not the one who's going to be able to say how we crack that particular nut. I do think that the multi-center collaboratives are the way to do it. Um, how we can, can find joy in, in um, all of the regulatory work involved to set up a program where you may only enroll one patient, but you could be really excited about that patient and do it well um, is, is a real challenge in a, in a world where efficiency and numbers um, count for a lot. Um, but that's the, that would help if we could figure out a way to involve our smaller programs in ways that, that they want to, everybody wants to participate. That's one of the values I see in the fact that we've continued to expect trainees to do significant research training. We need this for the future of our field and the future of our patients. Um, but then we need to figure out ways that we can keep everybody involved in it in one way or another. Not everybody's going to lead the programs. Not everybody's going to do the basic research. Um, but everybody can participate in the concept somehow. And we should maximize that any way that we can. And Vicki, that is a lot of the joy of our practice to be able to contribute. You know, there's one locomotive and there's one caboose, but there's a lot of options to be on the train. 
Um, and, you know, when you mentioned the nut to crack, you were not referring to a Buckeye, right, Vicki? I couldn't have been, no. But, be, you know, before we leave, I do want to acknowledge and tout the best thing in our field, which is the young people taking us to better places, like our co-hosts and contributors on the, the Sediment podcast. You know, you're really the best thing we have going for us is the energy, the motivation, the brilliance, uh, and, and the way that you all communicate and care about patients and also care about our field. So uh, that's, it is, it's, it is the best thing of our field. It's the passion that you talked about, John. It, it, it's the passion. Yeah. Well, we have great role models. And so uh, sometimes it feels uh, intimidating that these are big shoes to fill. But when I get a group of people like this together, especially on the sediment, I feel that, you know, this gives me so much food for thought because on one hand, you look at everything that we've achieved in the field of pediatric nephrology and you think all the great discoveries have been done. What am I doing? You know, I'm just adding little incremental bits and pieces here. It's like all the big problems have been solved. Uh, but then you talk to people doing clinical research and you talk to people who are seeing patients every day and we realize that we have not really moved the needle much for our patients. So there is so much more work to be done and there's so much more opportunity to make lives better that getting a group of people together like this, uh, whether it's through ASPN, PNRC, any of the groups together, um, this serves as a, like a little charging station for us. So it gives us the energy to go on and do things. And we learn from the experience of people who've done this before. So thank you all. This has been wonderful. I was, oh, before you uh, sign up, I also just wanted to mention one other fast fun fact about um, where I'm located. This office is Pat Brophy's old office. <laughs> And so Where's the hockey I, sticks? I don't see the hockey sticks, Lindsay. That would be at my house. Where's the whiskey? But look, you guys, you know, Pat left a few things around. And I kind of brought one tonight for everybody to enjoy. Yes, um, let's get you, the camera out. Woohoo! <laughs> What's that? What's he doing? He holding. Is that a bird? Is that the cat? Well, no, um, no, it's Photoshop, but. <laughs> The Brophy Trophy. Oh, the Brophy Trophy. <laughs> so this will be, you know, past uh, legend here at Iowa lives on forever. So don't be surprised if another Brophy Trophy winds up on Twitter. It's um, this picture of Pat with a parrot. Pat photoshopped onto a parrot, uh, holding a parrot. Priceless. <laughs> okay, just Absolutely. what is what is it about pediatric nephrologists and animals. I think we started the whole podcast with animals. <laughs> Are we really pediatric nephrologists? Or like, is there like veterinary science involved here? <laughs> well, you heard Lindsay wanted to be a veterinarian. So there you go. See? Oh my goodness. <laughs> One more thing I'd like to share. Can I share my screen? Yes, absolutely. There go. Um, this is in honor of John. Wait, do you? Yeah. Can you see this? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. That's the board so, review. The board people, review. Yes. So for people who uh, are listening at home, uh, we took a picture at, we had the board review course at the at Nationwide, and John was a, 
great host and wanted to take us all out to dinner. And we decided to not call Ubers or anything, but pack six nephrologists in his little sedan. Um, so this is our clown car of pediatric nephrologists, uh, Chuck McKay, John, myself, Adam Weinstein, Kim Reedy, and Mahmoud Kalash. And we were driving 45 miles an hour at the time, wait, right, Christine? Wait, wait, that's not Kalash. That's not. Kalash. Oh, wait, who is no, that? No, that's not Kalash. Um, oh. Who is. I know Mahmood very well. He worked with yeah, me for a yeah, few years I, before he went to is Nationwide. That is that Renee? I think yeah, that's maybe Renee. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh. Renee wearing glasses. Renee with the glasses. How many nephrologists can you fit in a car? Uh, yeah, pediatric nephrologists in a tiny little car. And then we got to have this picture up on Twitter. And Chris, yeah. Christine was in the booster seat. Yes. Christine's the only one looking at the road. <laughs> I know. Big question. Who's driving? <laughs> we used to do the same thing with the Jelf scholars, and we'd all pack everybody into the back of Katie Schubert's minivan. And I can't, we would fit in, you know, more people than you could imagine, even into a minivan to go to NIH and Capitol Hill and do all that fun stuff. Wow. Can't wait to get together again in person and see exactly how many nephrologists we can fit into one car. <laughs> Always a challenge. Yes. Thank you for joining us on The Sediment. It's been great to have you all listening in. It's wonderful to listen to everybody um, uh, explore uh, the future and the hoary past, the legends of uh, nephrology. And we look forward to having uh, some more great discussions on the next episode of The Sediment. Stay safe and good night.